Hey, Breakthrough listeners, it's Jason Lowe and Peter Lount from episode number 107. At Ascendant Financial, mybankersvault.com, we specialize in teaching real estate investors across Canada the process of becoming your own banker, the infinite banking concept. Do you also find it frustrating when it's difficult to access the financing you need or when the housing market moves against you? And when there's unexpected prolonged vacancy or expensive repairs, are you tired of transferring all that money away from you? We have the solution at mybankersvault.com. By becoming your own banker, anything that you are already doing financially, including real estate investing, is radically improved. Whether utilizing this process for down payments or for entire real estate purchases, becoming your own banker puts you in a position to control the repayment schedule on your loans while enhancing your overall returns. Whether you are brand new to real estate or a seasoned investor, we believe that ready access to money and financial control should be in your hands not the banks or a loan officer. We have an exclusive and irresistible package for Breakthrough Podcast listeners. If you want the best way to build and deploy capital, easier access to money, better returns, and less headaches, head on over to mybankersvault.com. That's mybankersvault.com. Hey guys, Omar Khan here with Beta Trading Co. I wanted to tell you about episode 124 of the Breakthrough Podcast. We currently have a special offer for Breakthrough Podcast listeners. We're offering a free one hour live training session where we show how to instantly add stock options as a new income stream. Now I've used this myself personally over the years to create a sizable real estate portfolio for myself and there's no reason you can't as well. Cool thing is it only takes about 30 minutes a day. So if you have a job, or if you have a business or you're just spending a lot of time with your family, you're gonna have time to incorporate this in your life if you take the time to learn this, okay? now. We're also offering a 15-minute free consultation to discuss how our option strategy can work with your current investment strategy and really take your investment to the next level, okay? So for more information, check out 30minutesstocktrader.com forward slash breakthrough to join us on our free live training, our next webinar. Remember again, episode 124, where Sandy and I go over exactly how I use this strategy to acquire a large real estate portfolio for myself, and there's no reason why you can't as well. See you there, guys. Talk soon. If you're looking for the skills and tools to succeed in real estate investing, you've come to the right place. This show is about breaking through barriers, breaking through limiting beliefs, and breaking through to the life that you want to live through the power of real estate investing. This is the Breakthrough Real Estate Investing Podcast. And now, here are your hosts, Rob Brake and Sandy McKay. Hello and welcome back everybody. Thanks for joining us today again for another really, really awesome episode full of uh, information and uh, real estate investing tips and tools that you can uh, take with you and use hopefully uh, on your next purchase. Sandy is here with me again. Sandy, how are you? I'm amazing. Excited to be back again and uh, and provide some value. Hopefully, uh, you know, I'm excited for this show. It's going to be a great, great topic of discussion. So I'm looking forward to it. I'm glad for that. After the, uh, during that countdown there, my mic messed up on me. So I was a mad scramble to get it back up and running before the, before the uh, intro was over. So I managed to do it. A lot, it of, a lot of, a lot of behind the scenes stuff that people don't know about, right? That mm -hmm. goes on here. So uh, we're good. We make it work. Everybody listening should go to our website, breakthroughreipodcast.ca. There you can download and uh, get in contact with every guest and listen to every episode that we have recorded over the past oh boy seven years and 
And, um, you know, there's still a lot of relevant information in all those episodes. So go back and listen to some of those. And as well, when you're there, you can pick up our free gift. Yeah, the ultimate strategy for building wealth through real estates. And uh, you can also get in our email list. Never miss out on a show. Uh, never miss out on an event or whatever we got going on. You'll keep updated on all that stuff. So go join our list there and uh, don't miss out. And if you haven't done so, please leave us a rating review on iTunes. Helps us out. You guys know this. Um, if you haven't done it yet, I'm going to call you out and please just go over and, you know, l- let us know what you think. Right. It doesn't have to be all good, all roses, but um, you know, if there's something that you want to hear from us or a topic or a guest that you think would be good, anything, just uh, go over, leave us a rating review. It'll help us place higher on iTunes. It'll help uh, more people find the podcast, right? Cause that's what it's all about. Getting the information out there to more people. So yeah, go to iTunes, leave us a rating and review. I definitely do all that stuff. I mean, we've had so many, so much great support over seven years, but it really does help us and um, really helps us deliver the value that we've got here and, uh, you know, allows us to, uh, to share with more people. And it's awesome. So always grateful for that support. Um, I don't know, Rob, you got anything to talk about? You, you just came back from a little excursion. <laughs> you were, you were really shy about talking to the audience about this stuff while you were away. Didn't know how everyone's going to feel about it. I'm just going to put you on the spot and say you got to share a bit more now. <laughs> well, I mean, again, there's just a, there was a, there was, see, we left before any of the implementation of all of this, you know, all of the um, quarantine rules sort of came into place, right? So once they did, I was just a, a little apprehensive, I guess, about talking about being away. But I mean, we didn't go away for a two week vacation. We went to go and like, investigate the idea of living uh in costa rica so i mean it went well we we definitely we were looking at properties we were looking at businesses uh all different kinds of things and uh uh, most of them most of the ideas that we had and most of the offers that we had in on properties because we did put offers in uh, didn't go anywhere but uh, we're still we're still investigating it and we're home now and we are sort of mid 14 day quarantine at this point. So I, uh, I can look out at the street, but can't really go anywhere or do so you're in, or see you're anybody. In, you're in Costa Rica for how long? Two months, three months, three months. Yeah. What was the, what was one, you got to share like one thing you, you learned either business related or not, maybe a couple of things. What were the couple key things that you took away from the trip? Oh yeah. You are putting me on the spot. <laughs> I guess it's good to, um, I mean, I've always said this to my clients too, and I understand when they're working with uh, more than one realtor, I think that's the way to get the deals. And um, and I sort of learned it myself the hard way um, with sort of just working with one person. And I believe that, you know, we lost a property that we should have gotten because the agent wasn't experienced enough, in my opinion, looking back maybe on maybe it. Maybe also just hired the wrong one, perhaps. Oh yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You got to have a lot of, a lot of, I think the point, you got to have a lot of irons in the fire, right? You got to have a lot of, a lot of things out there. I mean, we might talk about that today with these, these guys here, but around how to, how to find deals and stuff, but how do you, how do you do it? You need to have a lot of irons in the fire. You, you can't just rely on one source. Yeah. Cause that was it. I think, uh, I didn't research enough before starting to work with somebody. Nice. Nice. Well, it's exciting. Glad to have you back. We can, uh, Make sure these shows run smoothly. Like, not that they didn't otherwise, but uh, but uh, there were a few little things that we uh, had to tweak while you're away. So, welcome home. Thank you.
Glad to be back. All right. Should we bring on the guests? Absolutely. Let's do it. We've got a couple of awesome guests here standing by. Uh, Mike Rockle, Mark Baltazar. And uh, they've got over 15 years of combined investment experience. Mark and Mike have transacted over 50 million in real estate, holdings of nearly 20 million. And uh, they've developed a network of top professionals in the apartment building, investing, and operation space to ensure its partners and students achieve their goals. So they do some really cool stuff, and uh, and they like buying some big stuff. And uh, so that's kind of the goal of the conversation here is uh, is learn a bit more about what they do and how they do this. So welcome to the show, guys. Cool. Thanks. Pleasure, thanks for having uh, us on. Yeah, pleasure to be on. I can't believe it's been seven years for you guys already. That's awesome. Congrats. Yeah, thanks. Welcome, guys. Appreciate you uh, taking the time this morning. So I guess let's just get started. Um, you know, each of you maybe take a, a couple minutes and tell us how you got started in real estate investing. Mark, you want to go cool. first? Yeah, yeah I'll I'll, uh, I'll take a stab at it. So uh, interesting enough, my um, as telling Mike this morning actually, as we were you know talking about this show, is that my my foray into so it's been six years for me. I've been an investor for six years, maybe just over six years, and um part of the beginning stages of that for probably about you know maybe six to nine months before actually purchasing uh first property it was your podcast i listened to your podcast you know i was commuting in and out of toronto hour and a half commute from where i am so three hours a day until your podcast was on steady so uh, it, it's amazing that's why it's seven years it's like yeah it's about right in terms of when i started listening to you guys um, so, so yeah, it's been six, uh, six years, over six years. I started, you know, my first deal was, was supposed to be a wholesale deal, it ended up being a flip. And then I did, you know, a bunch of flips for, you know, I've been doing flips for a bunch of years since then. Um, and, uh, held some properties along the way, um, you know, duplex, fourplex with Mike, we actually had one in Aurelia. And then, um, a few years back kind of moved into, um, apartment buildings, um, I, I was a business owner prior to moving into real estate. So this, the concept of running a business, a commercial entity, you know, turning it for profit um, is kind of what apartment apartment buildings kind of felt like that kind of sweet spot, at least for me. Okay. So Mike, how about you? Yeah. So I'm probably 12 years in now to my, to my investing career, started off in duplexes, triplexes, um, was still working full-time as a, as a licensed plumber. And at four years, I actually bought my first apartment building in 2014, um, kept working, built up a, a sizable portfolio of about 40, 42 or 44 units while I was still working full time. Um, finally decided to make the leap. Um, but before I, I did that, I became a licensed realtor and just kind of fully submerged myself into multifamily, working as an active realtor in multifamily and then, you know, starting the business with Mark to purchase, you know, multifamily. And we've just been, been growing ever since. Fantastic. So I guess that's your core strategy now. How did you arrive at that? Let's talk about that. Like, what was it that appealed to you so much about multifamily? So I think when I started, you know, my plan wasn't to get into multifamily. It kind of just evolved over time. I accumulated some, you know, a small portfolio of, of uh, holds uh, with a partner. And, you know, that was good. I liked it. Uh, but I also... I think what got me into apartment buildings was this idea, a few things actually. So scalability, so the ability to scale, um, take advantage of the number of units under one roof uh, type of concept, being able to acquire 10 at once, 15 at once. So that idea kind of made sense to me. The light bulb really went off. So I took a course early on, probably this was about 2017, end of 16, perhaps, how the apartment building space worked, how to evaluate, how to how to underwrite and such. And 
the thing that I really liked about is that I, I still feel this today. I think we both feel this today is that you have a little more control over the value of your asset um, because it's an income-based valuation approach uh, for buildings. And so, you know, if we can figure out a way and a system to improve the income, net operating income, then, then, then by very nature, we would have more control over uh, the valuation and, and rely less upon kind of what, uh, you know, the general market is doing, or perhaps your neighboring properties are doing. And uh, so that that's kind of really the light bulb went off in that, uh, with, with that regard. And, and um, yeah, I mean, kind of haven't really turned back, turned back since. And Mike, what about you? What was so appealing about the uh, apartment buildings or multifamilies? So, so two things for me. One, I was not able to qualify for mortgages. So that was becoming a roadblock for me. I was constantly looking for, you know, joint venture partners. And, you know, after some time, you kind of get tapped out. Um, and then the fact that multifamily is that much more stable, right? Like, depending on, on you know, residential homes, interest rates, this, that, it affects, it affects more residential side of things. Multifamily, like Mark mentioned, is just income-based. If you can increase that NOI, the value of that building is going up, right? And then it's a scalability. Right. Where do you want to be? If you want to get to 500 units, 700 units, a thousand units, what do you believe is the quickest way to get there? Right. So that's where multifamily came in and that became, you know, a strategy for me to move forward. Yeah. Those are all good points. Makes sense. What, what about the management side of it too? Do you find that there's um, some efficiencies in, in that too? Obviously if you have four, 40 units in one place versus 10 different properties with four units each, you, you, I guess, I guess you kind of touched on that with the control of the, of, of the asset, right? You a little more control having it in one place versus 10. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's yeah. an economies of scale thing too, right? You have one roof, one boiler. Um, it's all in one location, very easy to manage. It's one kind of like a one-stop shop rather than having to go to multiple houses, deal with multiple furnaces and things like that. So yeah, it definitely becomes more, more efficient. And, you know, I, I have some bigger clients too. And as you get familiar with the space, you just tend to get bigger and bigger because it gets more efficient. Right. Where, you know, there's some clients dumping 20 and 30 unit buildings because they want to buy the 70s and 80s now just for that, you know, efficiency reason. Right. Doesn't make sense for us at this point. And as you keep growing, you know, the smaller stuff becomes less efficient. And I'm sure you guys heard, you know, Grant Cardone, he talks about not buying under, I think it's 32 or 34 units just for that very reason that it's less efficient. I was going to say, and then the other thing, too, is and I experienced this with a duplex that I have. You know, one, you know, one tenant left and, you know, trying to fill that unit, not hard to fill that unit, but, um, you know, you know, the other tenant was difficult and so made it hard to actually fill the unit. And so now, 50, you know, I have basically 50% vacancy on that one duplex, whereas, you know, let's for easy math. You know, in a ten-unit building, one person's leaving. Your vacancy rate isn't; it doesn't affect the income stream as much, right? So, I think it goes back to what Mike was saying too: is just the stability of the asset. Like things happen, of course, like in any property, but I think you have a little more. Um, I think a little bit more of a buffer when it comes to uh, multifamily because you just have more units, more more to play with. Also, the mistakes could be bigger too. <laughs> That's the other thing. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's do uh, just a very very basic overview. You mentioned you know NOI words like that that maybe our 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 more novice uh, listener base might not know. Let's go a very very basic version of how do you actually look at some of the numbers? Some of the, like you mentioned the financings maybe a bit easier in at times with this type of property versus a, a residential financing uh, side of things. So 
Can you talk a little bit more about that? How, how you analyze like a deal on a very, very, very basic level? Yeah. So, so NOI is net operating income is all your income minus your expenses before your mortgage. So the way we typically look at billings is, you know, what is it worth today from a lender's perspective? So how much money is the bank going to lend to us? How much money do we need to put into the building? So for example, you know, $5 million building, they're going to give us say 80% loan to value, whether it's to the first or a second, uh, we're a million dollars in. And then we'll look at an end value based on that building. Once we transition, if it's 50% of the building, we think we can transition 75% of the building, whatever that may be, what does our NOI, our net operating income look at that point? And what is the value of the building? Meaning if we bought it for five, we had to put a million in and our end value is now seven. We've made $2 million on our $1 million investment. And if we can kind of look at it and say, okay, we were able to turn over X amount of units within a five-year period. Well, now we're at, you know, 200% across five years. And that's from a basic level, how, how we're typically analyzing. We're looking at what it's doing today, what it's worth, and then what it's worth uh, when we're done, you know, stabilizing the building. Because we're typically buying, you know, more of a value add building than a turnkey. Right. And, and when you are looking at turning over the units, um, is it, is it a combination of the, the rent being a little bit under market as well as maybe some, uh, forced appreciation in renovations, uh, that you're doing in these units? Yeah. So, so, I mean, going back to the whole concept of net operating income, that that's really the game, right? Is how do you, how do you improve the bottom line, I guess you could say net operating income, and you can do that through decreasing expenses um, or improving income. So our model has been, at least I think most of the apartment buildings that we're operating today has been to uh, turn over lower paying uh, units into, you know, higher rent units. And that's typically, you know, requires some sort of renovation. Um, the properties that we're, we're acquiring you know, have been poorly managed for the last, you know, 15, 20 years or so. Um, and so they need a little bit of a, uh, you know, some cosmetic, uh, it's usually mostly cosmetic, very little structural stuff has to be done. And so, you know, you give each of these units a polish and now, now they can, uh, they can command higher rents in some of the properties that we're, that we have going on right now, we're, we're also adding units to it as well. So that that's that's a little bit of a bonus, right? So for example, one of our 18 units in Hamilton will end up with 22 units plus a whole bunch of those 18 uh turned over. Um so that that's kind of the the crux of the strategy. Now now with that there is, you know, there is risk, right? So I think, you know, people considering the space, you have to look at both sides of the coin. Um and part of the risk is how many units are you going to turn, right? That's kind of part of the equation, right? So we, one of the things we see, uh, I'd say often, is that there's a projection of turning over 100% of the units. Now, it's possible. There's ways to do that. But it's also, you know, it's a, it's a significant undertaking. It doesn't always happen. Um, and so, you know, you know, we're fairly conservative in terms of our unit turns. Um, so it's something to consider when estimating kind of what your your end net operating income is going to be. Mm -hmm. What what might you use there? Would it be 50%? Would that be a conservative number generally? Or or is it all over the place depending on the deal? Yeah, depending on the deal, anywhere from 50 to 75, we typically don't go over 75. There's two things I want to talk about. I want to talk about strategy for turning over those units because 
that's a very important way to go into it and know how you're going to get that accomplished. But how how important um, would you say in regards to net operating income is your energy consumption in the units? And what do you guys do about that? Like when you turn over units, are you thinking that way? In some of the buildings, like we're firm on a building now that has, you know, baseboard heat. The tenants, the tenants are paying for their own um, electricity, so it's on them. But that also hinders their ability to pay more in rent. So, you know, we we put a few of these ductless AC units. They're ductless mini splits. They have heating as well. We're kind mm-hmm. of exploring um, those PTEC units. They're you know the heating and AC units that you know hotels typically have, and. Mm-hmm what what you're able to do in a lot of cases is kind of tone your boiler down right so now the the boiler heat that's the benefit of being being a partner is because I, I we can finish each other's sentences um so yeah from an energy consumption standpoint um i would say i expect all of our units right now are individually metered so that's that's a that's a part of the equation that yeah you have to look at um uh, we, we, we actually, this week, we did look at a building where, uh, it wasn't individually metered. So the, uh, the expense, the operating expense, kind of the hydro operating expense for the landlord was, I think it was about $18,000, which is fairly expensive. And so one of the ways to, again, improve net operating income by reducing expenses is to, uh, eventually, um, add sub metering or individually meter each of those units. Um, now you have to do that on a turnover, a unit turn, because you can't just, you know, all of a sudden add hydrometer to a unit where there's a tenant in there and then I'll add it to their lease. You can't really, I mean, unless they agree, which I don't know of a tenant that's ever agreed to that. So that is, so from an energy consumption standpoint, that is one way to do that. Um, <clears throat> as Mike was saying, in terms of the, uh, the ductless ACs, so that's, that's elect, you know, electric, a hydro charge. Um, so that kind of goes on the tenant if they want to, you know, if they decide to use that and, um, you know, from an efficiency standpoint, you know, we're led lights and all that kind of stuff, making it more efficient throughout common areas as well. So common areas in the, again, the apartment buildings that we're taking over the, at least the ones that are a little more run down, uh, perhaps poorly managed, you know, incandescent lights exist. So that gets all swapped out so that we can at least reduce common area expenses as well. I wonder if they uh, like because those units that you're talking about, the in wall have like like uh, Mike was saying, they have heating and air conditioning. Yeah. Where I think a lot of times, like in those buildings that you're talking about, uh, when you take them over, they don't have any AC. So that might right. be some kind of a like you know, hey, we're we're willing to add AC. Yeah. Are you willing to take on the payment? Might yes. work out. Yeah. yeah, it's so so our experience is that it it's worked out. We figure that we're we're able to again in the market that we're in. So we're we're in Hamilton, uh, mostly Barry as well. Um, so kind of Golden Horseshoe. Our our um, estimate is that because we've we add those and now they're about thirty five hundred dollars per unit, give or take, right? Mm-hmm. So also, you know, it's it's an investment. Um, and in fact, it is that because we think we can get about a hundred bucks at least or so, give or take, depending on the area, hundred dollars more per month, uh, from the tenant for having that kind of to say, you know, in suite, uh, AC. So let's talk a little bit about strategy then for those turnovers. What, 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 how do you guys go about that? Yes. We can hear you. Yeah. So, okay. So, um, so we have a, a three step process basically. So, okay. I mean, it's four actually, when you think about it. So first and foremost, 
um, the turnover strategy starts, I think, or at least we're looking at it before we even acquire or go firm in a building. So that's kind of part of the, the evaluation and underwriting is when we're looking at a building is estimating how many of these units are potentially going to turn over. And you never know, right? I mean, you never know. That That's part of the, I wouldn't call it a guess, but you know, an educated guess or hypothesis as to kind of how many you're going to turn. And that's dependent on a bunch of things, right? So tenant profile, you know, if it's older single males, unlikely that they're going to move and they've been there for a long time, unlikely that they're going to move, right? Um, now, they may for, with a cash for key strategy, which we'll kind of get into as kind of a, as a later step in our process. So step one is how likely are the uh, tenants in that building going to turn over? So you know, millennials typically turn over a little bit faster than others. Um, maybe younger families once they start growing out of their units. So those gonna be, there's going to be a natural turn rate. Um, so let's say you know we decide okay this this building is going to produce enough of a turnover that makes sense for our model. Now we acquire it. Uh, basically, week week one to four, um, we'll have a conversation with uh, each of the tenants, and you know one introduce ourselves um, as new manager either it's Easier us ourselves or a property manager for that market, and and we'll say, listen, you know, we're we're about to kind of undergo some significant renovations. Um, you know, it may take, and and again, this, you know, honestly, it could take twelve months, could take eight, eighteen months, could take twenty four months. Um, you know, what are your plans? Here's what's coming: noise, dust, etc. Typically, um, what we'll find, and the rate I say is maybe anywhere from ten to fifteen percent of units or so. We'll say something like, "Yeah, you know what? I've we've already been considering it. Kind of, we thought about it, right?" And people in general are complacent, just in general. And so, yeah, we've been thinking about it for a little while. Or, you know, uh, if it's an older tenant, yeah, my kids kind of want me to move closer. So this sometimes is just the is the is the nudge that they needed to kind of move on. So you'll get people that will move just you know by having that conversation. Um, then you know we'll see how many. A turnover at that point, then, then at some point we, we are prepared to offer. And again, depends on the building, depends on the strategy, depends on how much uh, they're paying uh, a cash for keys type of strategy, right? So um, helping with moving costs, paying first and last month's rents of their, of their next uh, building, um, helping them find another place. So we'll have a team member on our staff do that, right? So that kind of helps the process a little bit. Um, and then, and then once construction starts, uh, they're, people just tend to, you know, tend to move naturally. So that's kind of our, that's our process. Um, again, it's, 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 it's art and science, really. It really depends on the building, depends on the tenants. And it's, it's about building kind of that relationship with people and having that conversation. Makes sense. And then is there, you, where do you find most of the opportunity in these buildings? There's really two sides of it. As you mentioned, there's the increased revenue or decreased expenses. Is there a lot of, uh, is there a lot of missed opportunities in the, the increased revenue seems to be pretty obvious for most people. I think maybe some people can't see the uh, inefficiencies in the in the in the expense side of it. How do you actually analyze that, or how do you find out? Like, is that just you know you get your your um, pro forma or your 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 financial statements from the the buildings? Typically, you see them on MLS. You see some some numbers. How do you know if they're running efficiently or not? How do you how do you analyze that stuff? So typically, you know, just being experienced, we know what a water bill should be approximately for 12 units, 18 units. And you can kind of break that cost down per unit. Right. And then you kind of gauge, Hey, there must've been in, you know, their uh, utilities like um, toilets, low flow plumbing fixtures, 
uh, things like that. So what we've done now is we've actually, and they kind of, you know, will come in and make suggestions on what they think we should be uh, doing to improve, whether it's putting, you know, low floor aerators on faucets, uh, you know, low floor toilets and things like that. Also LED lighting as well. Yeah. So there's obviously there's, the, oh, there you go. Well, anything else? Uh, sorry. There? We, well, we missed uh, who it was that you had come in to do that assessment. Who, who did you, who do you guys use for that? Uh, so I think they're called Buildwise, I believe. Um, we're actually we're actually meeting with them tomorrow on uh, two of our apartment buildings in Hamilton for that reason because we're under construction right now. And so what they'll do is they'll come in. Uh, so it's a couple of things they'll do is they'll they'll estimate um, how much they could potentially save from a water consumption standpoint. You know, putting you know again, a lot of times it's fixtures or aerators in the mm -hmm. fixtures, um, and then also. Uh, is it worth? And this is this is a question that at least you know myself, Mike, and some of our other partners we we have we discuss each time we have a building. Is it worth putting in water meters, right? And um, so a couple of considerations from a water meter standpoint. So again, putting in a water meter um, allows you to now measure how much water is being consumed at the unit level, and then you can charge it back to the tenant. Um, so some of the considerations is you know how many. Well, one you have to look at the plumbing. Um, how many uh, uh, how many source uh, pipes are coming into the unit, right? So each each source pipe uh, needs a water meter. So one of the older buildings we're working on right now, you essentially need six right meters. It's not going to really make like it's economically doesn't make sense. The other thing that you have to consider too is that there is uh, an an appeal for a tenant that you know has a unit. And maybe they're just paying hydro uh, extra, like kind of additionally, and then there's the rest is inclusive, right? So there's also this kind of, I think, balance between if everything is extra, how, what does that do from a uh, rental impact and, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, net operating income, uh, in impact. So that's kind of, we look at those things to determine what's going on, uh, or at least what we decide. So we're, we're doing that tomorrow for kind of our more recent projects and see kind of where it, where it ends up. I love this kind of like insider information, you know, because it's always like a lot of time we get the overview, right? Like of the stuff that we're going to talk about next, actually, but not really yeah. any of the sort of inside. How do you, you know, reduce um, reduce costs and and all of that kind of stuff? So I I, I love this kind of conversation. One thing we one thing we glanced over that I just wanted to go back on quick was um, the financing side of it because it's you don't have to go yeah. into too much detail, but um, I might've been Mike that mentioned just, it's easier at times to get, get financing or work the financing side on, uh, on bigger buildings, your commercial lending, uh, world at that point. So what, what is the advantages there versus typical kind of residential mortgages? Yeah. So I think, um, okay. So I think the first thing is the most basic level is like, right. You know, residential, you're looking at TDR total debt ratio, right? So they're really looking at the, you know, you personally and how your ratios stack up and you know, your mortgage, how many mortgages you have. So you're a little, little more limited. Um, the more you add to your portfolio, you start to get a little more crunched in terms of space, I guess you can mm -hmm. say on the commercial side. I think this is a, um, I don't know if it's a myth. I think it's a myth anyways, is that when you go to commercial, they don't look at you at all. So that's not true. They do look at you as the guarantor, as the operator. And they want to look at a few things. One that your net. So a couple of things they look for is that your net worth is 
um, you know, 25% of the loan amount, right? So that typically isn't a big barrier, but they do look at that. Um, they also look at, you know, your track record, your portfolio, have you done this before, right? So again, you know, you're essentially buying a business, right? You're buying a business, whether, you know, whether it's a restaurant or a retail shop, you know, you're, you know, those in apartment buildings, you're buying an apartment building business, right? And each building is kind of its, you know, at its simplest form is a business. So they'll look at you and assess whether or not they feel comfortable in financing you as a, you know, operator of a business. So that's kind of part of it. But the, the, the primary criteria is the, is the asset itself, right? So does this thing, the asset, does the building produce enough income to support the financing terms that are being asked for? Um, and also does the lender uh, believe in the strategy that you've laid out, right? So, um, so that's kind of in a nutshell, kind of what it, what it looks like. So it's more about the property on the commercial side, but, but they do look at you as well, you know, to some degree. You don't necessarily need to show a nice fat T4 statement, I guess, is the, is the big right. thing. So there's a lot of people, right. yeah. uh, in, you know, a lot of business owners, things like that might have challenges finance, yeah. financing a duplex, right? Even though they Correct. have a great big business with lots of, income, maybe they're not showing all the income they make, right? Yeah. Or they're, they're, they're efficient from a tax perspective, I guess. So, yeah. 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 So there's, there's definitely some reasons to get into this just from a qualification standpoint. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. Some of the smaller op opportunities. Uh, I wanted to ask you, uh, obviously the area of any given market is very important, but are you tied to a certain market or are you, or do you guys just look more so at the building itself and the area in whatever market it's in? Uh, so, uh, so we're, we're evolving as well in that regard. So I think, um, you know, up until maybe about a year ago, we were just really strictly Hamilton. It's what both Mike and I knew. Well, um, I think there's still a good opportunity and it's not that we're ignoring Hamilton at all. In fact, we're continuing to look there. Um, what we found though, is that it's going to become very competitive, um, more and more, more than it was before. And also inventory is a factor, right? So. I don't know what the ratio is. You guys might know better, like single family homes to apartment buildings, but you know, it's, you know, way more in favor of single family homes, right? So there's fewer things to buy or fewer assets to buy in apartment buildings. So, uh, and part of the model is you got to kind of own and acquire these things. So with competition has forced us to look at other markets. So Barry is one of those. <clears throat> so we're just going to close on another, uh, our second apartment building and Barry Bear is a good market, um, good, uh, economic fundamentals. Uh, we are also looking now outside of those areas, um, you know, as far as well. And we've, you know, we've put offers in, in Kingston as well. So we're kind of expanding our horizons that way in terms of, from a criteria standpoint, the market still, so we, we're not going into really, really small markets where the, uh, the populations are really small and the, and the cap rates, I don't know if we're going to get into cap rates, but the cap rates are a little bit higher. Um, we, we, we haven't really decided to venture you know, for example, as far as Sudbury or even North Bay, um, we like kind of more populous kind of areas, uh, just from a fundamental standpoint. Uh, but yeah, we're, we're definitely looking at the market. So, so within kind of that wider range, then we'll look at, okay, the building has to be purpose built, right? We don't, yeah. we're not fans of larger kind of big mansions that are chopped up into, into units, just kind of not, not our strategy. Um, you know, purpose built, you know, 12 plus units, 12 to 30 would be great. 
um, you know, with parking, um, again, can attract kind of upper, upper market rents. So is part of the reason for not looking into like Sudbury or North Bay or that kind of thing? Because, well, I guess this is a better way to ask. How involved are you? Like, are you on site? Do you or do you buy some of these buildings without seeing them based on the advice and and, uh, people that you have worked with? Uh, yeah, so we've not bought a property site unseen or having other people kind of walk through it for us. Um, like we'll do that. So in terms of the distance part of it, like happy to go up to Sudbury and look at a building if it made sense. I think right now my my hesitation is just the the economic stability of a region like that. I think when it's good, it's good. When it's not, it might not be. Um, so it's just it's just that level of comfort. I think for for me at least at, at this point. Um, now there are benefits to places like that is that you, you, you know, you're cash flowing, you know, significantly right off the bat, which is also, you know, a part of, you know, it's a strategic kind of question that everyone should be asking themselves is, do you need cash flow right now? How much cash flow? And if so, go to the region that provides that amount of cash flow. So I see those as ca- more cash flow plays. Um, so it's not, not out of the question. It's just right now, I think we're, we're doing okay and finding, finding at least enough properties in, in, uh, in the kind of gold golden horseshoe and surrounding areas uh what do you what is there a mentioned cap rates i know that's the factor when you're looking at these properties it's not the be all end all especially on the purchase because if the value adds there yeah kind of irrelevant right yep how do you look at that in terms of um how do you know what the from lending point like what the the value at the end of it how do you gauge what that value is going to be at the end and how does Mm -hmm. the cap rate come into play with that sure yeah yeah no it's a, a really good question it's it's one that we get a lot from you know people that we coach and we help out is kind of what's what is a good capper right and it's it's such a it's a hard it's like a mortgage rate right people get really infatuated yeah. with it it's, it does yeah. mean something but it's definitely not be all end all 100 i think that's that's the key message is that it is a factor right i think so the big factor for us the end factor is roi so what is this thing going to do once we apply our strategy right so is it going to generate enough money for ourselves and, and some of the properties that we're in on we have partners as well so is it enough to do that now to to measure roi um you do need to know the end rate or the end value and the end value is going to be based on some sort of cap rate and so you know you do have to do some future looking um it's kind of some projections in terms of what it could be um how we how we do that um so we we talk to our lenders right um try to get a sense of what is cmhc if we go cmhc or what is you know conventional what are they going to do what are they financing right now um and what is that going to be in the future so our future look we i mean i think we're we're fairly conservative when it comes to underwriting um if we when we're projecting out five years or building out a performer um we typically don't factor in uh a ton of cap rate compression. So meaning that, you know, cap rates over time will start to shrink. The value of a property is the inverse of that. So as cap rates shrink, property values kind of go up. Um, so we, we typically, so for example, if, if um, lenders are financing a, a turnkey building today, cause that's what we're turning our buildings into turnkey buildings uh, at a 5% cap rate, our pro forma will estimate the value of that at a 5% maybe maybe we'll shrink it a little bit to 4.8 for example um so that that's how we do so we'll, we'll you know we'll talk to our lenders we'll, we'll we'll you know based on our other buildings that's why the benefit i think is in work of working in similar markets over and over again is that 
you start to understand the economics of it and how people trade and lend and all that kind of stuff. So, but again, it's, it's not a science either, right? It's, uh, you know, it's a little bit of science. You need to get a little bit of science. You mash it together with some, some experience and, you know, you, you hope that you can kind of come up with something close to reality. So like, let's take Hamilton for an example. Is there, is there like a, um, overall cap rate that they would use for the city or is it, does it depend on other things? So, yeah, so, uh, we're in our projections for Hamilton turnkey buildings. So, uh, so we have one, two, three, four, four buildings, uh, in Hamilton right now that are undergoing some sort of improvement process. Mm-hmm. Our, uh, our end valuation, uh, is based on a, a 5% cap rate. Um, we've been talking to lenders recently that have been fi- financing similar buildings like ours will be at about a 4.75 and a 4.8. So I would say maybe a you know, to could be conservative, four point eight to five percent cap uh, for a turnkey building that a lender will finance. And do you find that out just from talking to different lenders, or or and it, is it dependent on the lenders, or is there some is there some standard for that? Uh, so each lender is going to finance their or underwrite in their own way, but in general, it's kind of going to be within that. Now, this is all so CM, we also look at CMHC, which tends to have a little more of a conservative, uh, you know, approach to underwriting. So their cap rate, when the cap rate they would use for evaluation might be a little bit a little bit higher, a couple of basis points higher. So how we find that out, one, just being tapped into other investors. Hey, what did you get your building financed at or refinanced at? Right. So that's really important is just, you know, engaging with other investors doing what we're doing, similar size buildings, similar neighborhoods. Um, our appraiser, so the appraiser that we we use even before buying a building, hey, what are things trading at in that area? So that's super helpful. And then and then the lenders that we use, um, you know, hey, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Lender, what's kind of, what are things being uh, financed at by CMHC today? Or what are you financing th- at uh, today? So not just one source, but taking, a variety of sources to kind of get a a better gut feel, and then that cap rate is not that's that's from what the lender's going to look at it. Yes, real value in the market might be a little different. Probably probably yes. going to trade at a little lower than than that most likely right, in most markets. Um, but you're looking at that because you're probably doing some version of a refinance right afterwards to get yeah. a lot of that capital out and then recycle it, yeah. right? Yeah, that's, I think that's an important point too. Is that uh, especially like for people that are maybe venturing into this for the first time and going to buy buy their first building, for example, is just, you know, don't take average cap rates. That's not what they're going to find set at. There's, I mean, there's a difference between um, what we kind of try to coach people on is there's a purchase rate. So the market rate, like what things are trading at and then what the lenders are going to value at. And one of the big mistakes we see often and people get stuck like, oh, shoot, I didn't know I had it. I didn't, I didn't have that much money budgeted. I only, I thought, I thought things were trading at a four cap. Well, things might be trading at four cap or 3.4 or whatever, but the lender, you know, is only going to finance on a five cap. And so now you have this kind of gap and, and you're kind of like, if, and if you don't plan for that, you either have to give up the deal or you're really stuck at the end uh, trying to come up with extra cash to close, close a deal. Mm-hmm. So how do you find opportunities? How do, how do you find these places? Because it's one thing to, uh, you know, to, to find something that's, in a tough market like like a Hamilton, like like most markets right now across yeah. Canada, yeah, um, we're all in pretty tough markets to find deals. Um, I don't know, I haven't heard of one lately, at least that that is like uh, just abundance of deals in it. So, how do you find <laughs> these opportunities, and uh, how do you look at them? Like, because it's hard to find 
you know, you mentioned in Hamilton, <laughs> you're going to probably be buying at a, at a, even something that's distressed or regardless, you're going to be buying it at a, not a five cap, probably, probably something less. Um, you're going to need to see the future of that and what the, what the value add is, but how do you find opportunities? Yeah. So this, I mean, Mike spends a lot of time on this part of it. Um, in terms of value add so or sorry the uh source of deal so I, I think it's a combination of things i think you guys said at the beginning i don't know if we were on air yet when you mentioned it but like having a lot of uh, irons in the fire i think that's super important right so um you know connecting with uh you know as many specialty brokers as possible so uh you know uh, brokerages real estate brokerages that are focused uh, on commercial, uh, specifically multifamily, making sure that they know one that we're on their list, but also that hey, we're active buyers. Um, we are buying. We can close. So I think that's important to position yourself as someone that is going to be able to close, because there are a lot of people that are very interested in the space, like to look at information, but might not actually follow through. So I think dif differentiating yourself um, that way. Um, MLS is still kind of you know, I, I think you know. A lot of people uh, downplay MLS, but hey, MLS is a source, so I'll always look at MLS. Um, and then private, right? So kind of going direct to seller, um, you know, contacting, building owners. And so it's doing all of that. And and I think, again, given the given the level of inventory in a place and in a space like this, you know, if we can get, you know, a deal from each of those sources per year, that's, I think, a good year. Like three to five buildings a year is, is good. Um, at least for us anyways. Yeah, you got to spend maybe two, three years, depending on the size, to turn them over, right? It, it takes a, it takes a little time. That was the, that was one of the things I was going to mention too, just on the cap rates is you got to be, you got to understand it might fluctuate because you're not, you're yeah. not turning these over and refinancing in a month um, or, or yes. six months even like a That's lot of right. smaller, you know, a duplex, you might turn around in six months or less versus, yeah, you got to get rid, you got to remove tenants, you got to do a lot of work over time. Like this is a couple of years, three year project, most it's likely. Hundred percent, yeah. It's a process. So, like, you know, most of the stuff we're projecting, like our kind of stabilization process or period, is is thirty six months typically. Some are a little bit faster, but you know, it's n typically not shorter than eighteen months, um, and typically not longer than thirty six months. So, it's kind of eighteen to thirty six month process. So if you were bringing in, at least they to do some with partners, uh, when you, when you bring in partners, what does that typically look like in, in that sort of deal? Like, are they parking their money for, for the three years or for up to three years sort of range or how does that work? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it, it is somewhat project dependent. So, uh, some of our more significant value. At, so, so I think, yeah. So short answer is yes, they're parking their money, let's say for five years, for example. Um, now each deal is structured. We try to keep things, you know, pretty cookie cutter from what we, how we do things, just simplicity, just kind of repeat the machine. Um, but uh, some of our more significant value adds are uh, on a refinance. We are able to, you know, just like a single family burr, we can, um, we'll take some capital out on a refinance and, uh, and our investor partners will get some of their capital back. And that, that ranges, right. It could be 20% as low as 20, it could be, you know, as high as 50 and sometimes more. It really depends on the project. And then they're, and then they're, they're in for, you know, a five or seven year period, more turnkey building. So again, we just, we just acquired one in, in, uh, in Barry, that one is performing really well right off the bat. So we're actually going to be able to go with like a CMHC kind of five year financing that one, unlike most of our other projects can actually pay cash flow right off the bat. So that's kind of an, you know, that's uh, an interesting feature one for us and in, in our partners. 
Um, but that's typical. Yeah. It's kind of a, it's a five year, you know, five year period. Okay, well, I think that this might be a good time to transition into uh, telling us a little bit about the podcast that you do. And the reason why I'm asking is because I was sort of curious of where you guys are finding your partners, right? And I think maybe this has a little bit to do with it. But tell us about the podcast. Yeah, cool. No, I mean, the podcast. um, So the idea came. So I went to I was in the US maybe two years ago. Uh, So I went to a multifamily conference. and, And really, my goal in, in Dallas, uh, which is, you know, good, like a big hub of activity for when it comes to multifamily and transactions and some of the, you know, a lot of the national players have head offices there. So my, my goal there was really just to see, cause us, I mean, as you guys know, um, in a lot of industries, at least the industry that I came from before, there are typically like two or so years ahead, uh, from a development standpoint, growth standpoint, innovation standpoint, than, than kind of we are here in Canada. So my, my purpose was to go there and kind of see how, how are these guys scaling? Because it's not uncommon to have guys equivalent to us that are have a thousand units, you know, you know, 1500, right? So that's kind of more the norm there. So, so I went there to figure out how to, how to scale. So the big kind of idea that came out of that was, you know, start a podcast, start a podcast one, two, uh, one gain attention and position kind of position yourself. So our podcast, you know, was started primarily just to educate people about, um, about apartment buildings. What I saw, so my, my background is, uh, marketing and brand positioning and kind of helping companies kind of figure out what position they should carve out on the market. What I, what I found coming back from that conference was that there was a ton of, uh, Canadian real estate podcasts, but there, there weren't any, kind of at least for mom and pop investors or those starting wanting to get in about apartment buildings specifically. And so thought that, okay, let's kind of, let's start this thing. Um, and let's do a quick before, before there's others that jump in. So again, the goal is really to educate people. Uh, since then, uh, we've been, I think we've been doing that for about a year and a half or so now some good traction. So we do get partners reaching out to us because, because essentially, I mean, just like you guys, like you guys are, you know, you're talking about, you have guests, but I think when you're talking to guests, your your own tendencies and philosophies come out and people get to know you just based on listening to you. And so that's kind of, you know, it's interesting. I'm sure you guys get it too. You talk to someone that you you have maybe not have talked to before, but they're like finishing your sentences and they know what you think and they know how you think. It's like, holy cow, that's pretty amazing. And that's kind of the power of the podcast. So it's it has helped from a, from a partner standpoint, for sure, because they the better understanding of how we see things and how we see the world, how we see investing, how we see real estate. And if they like that, cool. And if they don't, cool. They, they already know kind of what we think. Uh, the other thing that it's helped us do is we do help with, you know, we do uh, coach people that are starting or at least wanting to get into the space and we kind of offer courses. So it's helped with that kind of uh, business as well. And I'm not, did you mention what it was called? Uh, the Canadian Multifamily Investing Podcast. And where can people listen to it? Yeah, so we're all we're all on the kind of major platforms, um, you know, Google Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Apple. Yeah, all, all the all the all the platforms that people typically listen. So to many podcasts. now. There's so many I know, now. I know, I know. Everywhere. I know it gets syndicated out yeah. there. So yeah. yeah, it's been fun. It's been fun, and I mean, uh, I'm sure like you guys too, right? Like it's you get to meet new people, you get to learn a bunch. Like we learn a ton from different people. Um, we've can we've been on a spree lately to get. Uh, different multifamily investors from across the country, just so that, you know, one, our listeners can get a better understanding, not just of the markets that we're in, but, you know, uh, New Brunswick, Nova Scotia, you know, Alberta, you know, Montreal, you know, so 
Yeah, it's been cool. I, I you know, we, we enjoy it. It's, I mean, it's, as you guys know, it is, there is a lot of back, background work and stuff like that, but it's, um, it's, uh, it's definitely rewarding. Have you explored any other markets like that? Uh, like, like I seriously explored them, I guess, not just explore. I'm sure you've li- lightly kind of looked a little bit, but uh, there's some different uh, rules and regulations, obviously across the country, which in Ontario is, is most yeah. of us know is not probably the most uh, landlord friendly province by any means um have you looked at some other ones that maybe have a little more a little less stringent on some of those rules that might be a little more advantageous for this same strategy yeah so i mean alberta is one definitely um their landlord you know their their tenancy acts are a little bit different so there's no uh there's no cap right there's no rent control so that that has different dynamics uh also uh nova scotia as well new brunswick too nova scotia didn't have, and again, this this was all learning kind of through one of our guests that is you know entrenched in that market. They they hadn't had rent controls until literally about two months ago. Where what what was happening is that there's a lot of investment coming from out of province, you know, from the west um, all the way kind of across and Ontario as well, going to that province because of that, as well as the property the property uh, values were a little bit lower, so cash flows a little bit better. And uh, what was happening is that um, I think they just saw that uh, tenants were being negatively affected. So they've, they've temporarily now put uh, rent controls just to kind of, I don't know how long it's going to be in for, but uh, so yeah, so we've looked at, you know, um, at least kind of at the surface level, uh, Alberta, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick. Yeah, rules are rules are always changing. Uh, Ontario's got some some frustrations around that. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, what's next for you guys? What are you What are you guys working on, or what do you got coming down the pipeline? Anything else uh, exciting on either like acquisition side of things, or um, even just building out the more educational piece of your business? Yeah, I think the uh, so a couple things. So at, in terms of the education, I mean, our our uh, we're just about to head into kind of our third kind of round of you know, training um, where we kind of teach people are basically how we acquire apartment buildings, kind of give all our stuff. So, so that that's been working well. So our plan is to continue doing that, you know, a couple times a year, and then to take on just uh, you know what some clients one on one just to show them how to do that. And uh, so that will continue. And then uh, and then we're looking right now from um, I think we're at we're at uh, a stage where we have enough units to start bringing some more functions in house. Um, so right now on our team, we have two marketing people that help with all of our education and, and marketing uh, uh, functions. But uh, now, you know, property management and maybe project management is kind of the next kind of, you know, step to bring in house to again, because uh, again, we have enough units that will allow us to do that. So that's kind of the next step. And, uh, and just, yeah, kind of looking to kind of streamline deal flow, really, that's the, you know, that's the, that's the, that's the, you know, I wouldn't say the bottleneck, but that's the, that's the hard part right now actually is, is deal flow. Cool. Where, where can people find out about the, uh, the educational side of things? They have a website that people can go to to learn about those. Sure. Yeah. You can go to uh, peakmultifamily.ca and, you know, we have everything there course, uh, you know, webinars that we've passed webinars, you know, people can continue to watch replays of, and, and again, we, we talk a lot about, um, you know, cap rates, how to calculate, like all, you know, all the stuff that, you know, if you're new to the space, this will give you a, at least a good head start. Yeah. And, you know, un- unfortunately we lost Mike for the majority of the interview here today, but uh, you'll be able to hear him more on the podcast, right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. What's it both? So it's both of us. We co-host it. Um, I, it's funny, actually our last guest, we had a guest from the West. So uh, British Columbia, 
you know, I had tech issues. So Mike actually had to finish the show and I wasn't even on the show for like the last 40 minutes. So, you know, that's, uh, but yeah, yeah. So we both co-host a show and, uh, uh, you know, conversational in style. All right. So one last thing we're going to, we're going to, uh, pull out a little bit of, um, advice from you right now. Uh, what's, is there, is there a quote or a piece of advice that you got at, that's always stuck with you? Uh, yeah. Okay. So the one, yeah. So there maybe a few, I think the, the one that, and this, this is not real estate related. It's really kind of anything that you're striving to achieve. It's, you know, if it, if it was easy, everyone would do it. I think that thing we, we go through struggles every day, right? Like we, you know, things aren't happening always the way you know, we wish. And so you kind of like, oh man, should we be doing this? So that, that to me is a quote that's kind of stuck with me always, right? Um, I think if things were easy, then there wouldn't be kind of the risk reward and the big opportunity mm -hmm. at the end of the rainbow. So that's one that I, I, I remind myself uh, often, <laughs> actually, right? So um, it's not always like, you know, smooth sailing, right? As you guys you guys know as well. Um, and then the other thing that I think is, um, is real estate related is in term is, um, you know, to get, get started. Right. I think like, you know, I see so many people that have, you know, thought about doing, and it doesn't have to be apartment bill. It doesn't really matter. You know, um, I, you know, I, I, listen, I, by my first, so I, I didn't get to this into my, or in my intro, like I waited and I thought about investing in real estate for five years before I actually got into it. And what a, you know, that, that's a regret, you know, for me. Right. And I thought about it for five years, like it's crazy. And then I finally got into it. Um, so I think if you're thinking about it, if you're still thinking about it, it's you're you're kind of late to the game. Just kind of get get into it in some way. Now, I'm not saying get into it blindly, right? There's so many resources now, like everywhere. Like it's like we're in an age now that you really find out everything, uh, anything, anywhere at any time. Is there's really no excuse not to get started? Um, I mean, I mean, you guys like really. It's you know my foray into it and learning was your podcast in the beginning, and that kind of that showed me what I know and what I don't know. Okay, what do I got to go dig? deep into i think that's what the good thing about podcasts is it kind of figure out what what should i really be studying more um so i think just get started i think that's the big thing you can that's, probably get you can probably get enough education to start in like a matter of months for sure 100%. probably probably in a month or less if you really went out of heart and yeah before you really should be just taking action and gaining some knowledge through experience yeah you, yeah you know you're always gonna it, it's not going to be easy, right? It's you're going to kind of hit bumpy roads, M maybe get a coach, right? So I think that's the other thing you can go a little bit faster. I think with everything that's available, you are, I think anyone can take the steps to get into it. Um, you could probably get there faster if you work with someone who's already done it, right? Because they're going to show you the mistakes that they made and kind of what not to do. But, um, but yeah, every, you know, it's, really no excuses now it's funny as philosophical as that sounds that piece of advice to just go do it you know it it is probably the most practical piece of advice that you can give as well right mm -hmm. um and and like you said sandy i think we've said this on the show a bunch of times it's like you just need to decide decide that that's what you're going to do give yourself a time limit and say you know okay i have decided to do it now i'm going to educate myself to a certain point you can educate yourself forever and not take action, but you got to sort of draw a line in the sand and say, this is how long I'm going to take. I'm going to educate myself in this time and then I'm going to do something. Right. Yeah. And, and keep on learning after that. Yep. And uh, your piece of advice reminded me of, uh, I think it was Jim Rohn. I'm pretty sure it was Jim Rohn that said, don't wish it was easier. Wish you were better. Mm -hmm. Right. That's always one mm -hmm. of those ones that sort of relates to what you were saying there too. Right. 
Yeah. So I've always liked that one. Yeah, no, I, I like in what you said. It's funny. My wife and I just were literally having this conversation last week about big decisions, right? Is it harder to kind of go through the steps um, or harder to make the decision? My, my perspective was, I think it's harder to say I'm going to do it than actually go through the steps. Yes, you're going to go, you got to go through it, but to, to actually commit to something, that's the, that's the thing. That's the hard part, right? Is commit to do something, then now go do it right now. It's going to just head down execution. But I think it's the deciding up front is, is kind of the, the tough part actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot mm-hmm. of people want to hang around the fence for a while. Yeah. It's comfortable there. It's very comfortable. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, thanks for sharing everything today. You know, we do uh, definitely appreciate both of you, both of your time. Um, and uh, thanks for sharing about the podcast. I'm going to check it out uh, as well. I'm sure that there's a lot of people that are going to go check it out now. So um, yeah, I mean, I just appreciate you coming on and sharing all this. Yeah. Thanks guys. I mean, thanks for giving us the, uh, the airtime just to share a story and yeah, happy to uh, yeah. again happy to continue kind of, you know, talking to people and kind of sharing again, we're only sharing what we know, right? I mean, that's kind of our, our model. We can't really share anything else. It's kind of, here's what we've done and here are the mistakes we've made. And hopefully people can, you know, can take something from that. Well, you guys have done a lot. You've taken action. You haven't, uh, you haven't uh, strayed from your, your words of wisdom there too much, at least. Uh, you've, you've done a lot. So congrats. Great success in uh, six years, you said. Um, that's awesome. I'm glad that uh, maybe our show inspired you a little bit to do it. Maybe it was a piece yeah. of it. That's, that's awesome to hear too. We love hearing that. Mm-hmm. Um, that was cool. I guess the best way to get in touch with you guys is peakmultifamily.ca. Yeah, all our yeah, all our contacts there. Um, I mean, we're pretty. Mike and I are pretty active on social. Um, you know, basically, uh, you know, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. Um, you know, we're there posting stuff. You know, doing. I know Mike's a realtor, so it's not too hard to find him. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure that's right. Pretty easy. That's right. Well, you can find all their contact information in the show notes as well. So if you missed uh, any of those. Um, ways of getting in touch with them, then just go over, click on the show notes and you'll be able to get in touch with both uh, Mark and Mike. So uh, again, just appreciate it all. And, uh, and it was really good talking to you. And I guess everybody, oh, well, wait a minute. I got to find out how to get in touch with Sandy. If, if someone wants to get in touch with Sandy, how would they do that? 289-389-6846 or Sandy at mckrealtynetwork.com, which you can see on the screen if you were watching on uh, Facebook or YouTube, which everyone, if you're just listening, you should come join us next time on the show uh, when we're live. Wednesday is 1030. Most, most, well. Every other Wednesday. Every other Wednesday, 1030. Let's see. Um, Yeah, you can reach me at rob at mrbreakthrough.ca. So I guess everybody will see you next time. Thanks for listening.